0: Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VDW Group, no purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Welcome to Finding Dad Bod, where my dad, Coach Alex Van Houten, puts his 14 years of experience to work for you. You should listen to him. He's pretty beast mode. Who knows who we could be if we could become 1% better every single day? What's up, guys? This is Alex Van Houten with Defining DadBot. I hope you're doing super well. You're listening to Season 3. Episode 45 of Defining DadBot, where we're talking about exercising your way out of depression. This episode's been brought to you by the Better Daily community. Join us in the journey to becoming 1% better every single day by going to definingdadbod.com slash betterdaily. Our community workshops, our groups, our challenges, and our app resources are all designed to motivate and inspire you by upgrading your screen time with cutting-edge science, caring coaches, and truly the best people I've ever brushed shoulders with on the internet, go to definingdadbod.com slash betterdaily and use code DADBOD, D-A-D-B-O-D, to get 25% off your subscription for being a Defining dadbod listener. That's definingdadbod.com slash betterdaily. Man, I am so excited about today's episode. Probably more excited than I should be, given the subject matter, but I believe of all the things that I've ever talked about on Defining Dad Bod, this show... The science of the effects of exercise on depression is really the most important. What we're talking about today could save your life or the life of a friend or loved one by diving into the little-known, practical, and simple research around exercise and its ability to treat depression. Before we get there, here's your food for thought. My food for thought for you today comes from a recent report put out by the CDC that shows that as many as 40% of the adults in the United States right now report wrestling with significant anxiety and or depression in the last year. This research was seeking to understand what the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic have been on the psychological well-being of the population at large. This is particularly troublesome because just two years prior to COVID, in 2018, it was reported that suicides among the young adult population and teen population were already at all-time highs and climbing. At the time, researchers blamed social media and the unrealistic comparisons that folks were making when they looked at other people's highlights and saw a disparity between what was real in their life versus what they were seeing on the internet. While I'm not sure how true that correlation is, I know that given what we've all been through in the last year, it's no wonder people are anxious and depressed. My food for thought for you today is this. If you're one of those people who in the last year have wrestled with anxiety and depression, I have two things to say. One, don't do it alone. Be vocal with your spouse or loved ones. Get connected with help online at the doctor's office or even in your local church. No, you shouldn't be able to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and no, you shouldn't feel guilty, as if there's nothing in your life worth being depressed or anxious about. You matter, and the people in your life will tell you so, if you can be open and honest with them. Isolation and idleness is the devil's playground. Don't do this thing alone. And the second thing I'll say to you is listen very closely to this episode. I know I'm a nerd, and sometimes science speak can make people glaze over, but the research cited in this episode, in conjunction with not being alone in your fight, can be just the information that you need to hear to make meaningful, practical, and doable changes that will improve how you feel and maybe even save your life. If you're listening to the sound of my voice, I want you to hang in there. Let's do this thing one day at a time. That's your food for thought today. I hope it gives you something to munch on. Now, without further ado, let's get to the amazing science that describes how exercise can jumpstart your brain out of depression. The idea that a consistent exercise regimen could be the most important bulwark against experiencing depression again and again in our lives is a powerful one. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about my experience with depression as a personal trainer of over 13 years, and I'm going to talk about what depression actually is and how it's ailing a large amount of people in our current population. Then we're going to talk about treatment courses that are currently used, both medication and cognitive behavioral therapy, some problems and side effects of those things, and then we're going to tackle the research around exercise and its effect on the brain, specifically with regard to depression. Then we'll tie all that up in a beautiful bow and talk about our recommendations, the Defining Dad Bod recommendations toward staving off depression if you don't want to have depression sometime in the future, or if you're currently experiencing depression, what the exercise recommendations are both the minimum and maximal dose to make a difference. I hope you're as excited as I am. Let's dive in. First, a story. When I was a young trainer, about four years into my training career, I was approached by a mother on the fitness floor. And she said, hey, I've been watching you for a while, which as a trainer, you get used to people saying to you, I mean, what else are they going to do when they're on the Stairmaster for like 30 minutes? She said, I've been watching you for a while, and I've decided you're the trainer that we need in our family. And I said, great, when can I start helping you? And she goes, oh, it's not for me, it's for my daughter. And she went on to tell me about how her young girl has wrestled with depression for the last 8 years of her life. This girl was 17 years old, was diagnosed with depression at age 9, and since age 9 had tried all kinds of different medications and was even undergoing electroshock therapy to see if some sort of progress could be made in her suicidal thoughts and her tendency to sleep for 20 hours a day. As I was listening to the mother talk about her daughter's predicament, first of all my heart kind of broke for the girl because I couldn't imagine during those adolescent years having to deal with the feeling of not wanting to get out of bed, let alone wrestling with the decision whether or not to end my life during my adolescence. But I also remembered some work that we had done in my psychology courses at Vanderbilt University, and one of the things that I remember sticking with me was exercise's effect on depression. Now, at the time, the research was little known, and this was a time when if you went to the doctor with symptoms of depression, they would generally prescribe you some sort of SSRI. The idea that exercise could somehow lift you out of depression was an anecdotal one, even though there was decent research to support it. But until this mother spoke with me on the fitness floor, I had never actually thought about utilizing that research in my practice of exercise. In fact, she taught me a thing or two, as her and her husband were up late one night, desperate to search for anything else that could possibly help their girl, and they stumbled on a large body of exercise research with regard to depression. And she said, since then, we've been looking for a trainer who we think would be be a good fit for our daughter, and after watching you for a while, we both agree that you're the one. I was apprehensive at first, to say the least. I didn't want to promise these parents false hope, because I'd never worked with a severely depressed client, and I told her that. But also, I'd remember all my clients that I'd worked with up until that point, and how their moods all changed, and how they seemed to be more positive people after they'd been exercising for at least 6-8 to weeks. And whether or not they lost weight, or gained muscle, or got better at any one particular thing, they always seemed to report feeling better overall. And if By doing what I did best, which was helping people move well, I could help this young girl feel less depressed over time than I was all for it. And I'll never forget the very first session I met, we'll call her Daisy. She was walking on the treadmill. I introduced myself. Hey, I'm Alex. I'm the trainer your parents hired, and I'm really excited to work with you today. And she goes, whoa, dude, tone it down just a bit. I just got up like 20 minutes ago. Since it was 2 p.m., I decided she'd set the tone for the whole workout, and I spent the time talking to her about what it is that she might enjoy trying in the gym. I'll tell you more about how Daisy and I worked together and what actually happened in her life at the end of this episode, but first I want to jump into the nuts and bolts of what depression actually is and how exercise might mechanistically help depression. First, I guess, is why we're even talking about this. Well, depression seems to be a huge possible part of the normal human condition. It's estimated that 18% of Americans will experience at least one bout of severe depression in their lifetime, and that will result somewhere in the neighborhood of $26 billion spent in healthcare costs. Even worse, though, is the fact that by the time you've listened to this entire episode, two people will have committed suicide in America because of depression. In just a second, I'll read you the symptoms of depression that the American Psychological Association used to classify depressed cases. However, while I'm reading, I want you to also understand that three Three quarters of depressed patients are also dealing with some other chronic issue. On that list is pain, anxiety, substance abuse, and even dementia. So as I'm reading the set of symptoms for depression and you think of them as a crushing weight on top of a person, also consider that three quarters of those people are dealing with some other powerful and difficult things. According to the DSM-5, an individual can be diagnosed with depression if they are experiencing at least five or more symptoms during the same two-week period. And that at least one of these symptoms are 1. Depressed mood, or 2. Loss of interest or pleasure. These eight symptoms are as follows Depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. 2. Markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day or nearly every day. 3. Significant weight loss when not dieting, or weight gain, or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. 4 slowing down of thought and reduction of physical movement observable by others not merely subjective feelings five fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day six feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day seven diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day eight recurrent thoughts of death recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or specific plan to commit suicide. Now, I know that's a lot of symptoms and it's hard to digest, but consider that in order to be classified as depressed, one must exhibit five of those things, like feel depressed, feel a lack of energy, entertain suicidal thoughts, feel guilty, and be reported by friends as generally lacking in movement or interest. That's a lot of symptoms. And consider that there are some people who might feel one or two of those things. Are they depressed? Well, by definition, they're not depressed, but they certainly are miserable. So the question in psychology and neuroscience has been, what causes depression? What actually is it? since a subjective list of symptoms doesn't actually tell you what's happening on the inside. You might be fascinated to know that the very first theory of what caused depression with regard to modern science came from observing that when patients undergoing tuberculosis treatment actually reported having higher than normal levels of happiness in their life, we stumbled upon what we call the monoamine hypothesis, meaning that there was a singular neurotransmitter in the brain that controlled whether or not somebody was depressed. That was in the 1950s. And our understanding of depression has evolved past that. Recent MRI imaging studies have shown that those who are clinically depressed and experience recurrent depression symptoms actually have structural abnormalities in the brain, one of them being a 15% reduction in the mass of the hippocampus. The hippocampus is a structure in the brain that regulates learning, memory, and even some emotive properties, and this study suggests that depression is not only an imbalance in neurotransmitters, but also a change in the structure of the brain that makes it difficult for the hippocampus to connect to itself and perhaps other structures of the brain to lack connection to other places as well. If you listen to other shows of exercise in the brain in the Defining Dad about exercise in the brain series, you know that other structures in the brain lacking connection have also been found in things like Alzheimer's and dementia. The other fascinating difference in a depressed brain versus a non-depressed brain was found when cadavers of those who've committed suicide were investigated post-mortem for BDNF, which is brain-derived nootrophic factor. If you've been following this series for a bit as well, you know that BDNF is the miracle-grow Of neurons, and so while there have been a lot of studies around the effects of neurotransmitters on somebody who's depressed, like serotonin, for instance, which is the neurotransmitter pathway that pharmaceutical drugs like Zoloft act on (SSRIs, serotonin reuptake inhibitors), it turns out that neurotransmitter imbalance is only a superficial part of the immediate problem. But underlying the genesis of depression is diminished connectivity of the neuronal tissue of the brain and the diminished ability of the brain to create new connections. In other words, if there's a good answer to helping people who are depressed, or even somebody who's pretty miserable but not clinically depressed yet, it must address the brain's ability to connect different structures of the brain and create new neurons. To beat depression, the brain needs a jumpstart. In his book Spark, Dr. John Rady is quoted as saying, At its core, depression is defined by an absence of moving toward anything. We need to trick the brain into coming out of hibernation. Well, that's great, Alex. Thanks for the history lesson and the symptoms of depression. But how do we kickstart a brain that's hibernating? That's a great question. In fact, the two widely accepted ways to treat depression in the psychiatric community right now is cognitive behavioral therapy and medication, and sometimes a combination of both. Cognitive behavioral therapy seeks to use a top-down model to help clients develop good habits, to develop good beliefs, and to use that cognition and behavior to slowly shake themselves out of depression. The primary problem with this approach is although it does show long-term benefits for depressed patients, is that there's low adherence to most programs. And on the flip side of the spectrum is the medication route. Clinicians prescribe antidepressant medications to help patients overcome immediate symptoms, that is, to feel better in the immediate, and that's a bottom-up approach. In cognitive behavioral therapy, it might take three months for somebody to come out of depression with perfect adherence, whereas in the medication pathway, things generally happen pretty quickly. And while adherence to medication is generally higher than cognitive behavioral therapy, the problems are side effects and relapse. The possible side effects for antidepressants make them a terrible option for many people. Weight gain, lack of libido, general malaise, anxiety, loss of immune function, and even suicidal thoughts are on the label of just about every one of the antidepressant medications. That's not to mention the things like gastrointestinal discomfort or sleep issues. And so it's possible that one can find a medication that will really help to lift you out of depression, but that medication will carry with it a lot of undesirable side effects. Simultaneously, Relapse is a problem with medication, since for many, taking medication helps them in the time that they're taking the medication, but when they discontinue the medication, depression rears its ugly head again. In fact, in a study pitting medication against exercise the medication group relapsed 52% of the time. So if medication acts on neurotransmitters to create a bottom-up approach to deal with depression, and cognitive behavioral therapy deals with beliefs and behavioral patterns in order to create a top-down approach to dealing with depression, then is it possible to address both with better adherence, lower side effects, and less of an opportunity for relapse? You probably already know where I'm going with this. It turns out that exercise is tackles both. Without side effects like loss of libido, weight gain, sleep disturbances, and diarrhea, exercise is shown to have a greater adherence than cognitive behavioral therapy and lower opportunity for relapse than medication. The real questions are twofold. One, why does exercise have such a powerful effect on depression? And two, why are clinicians not screaming this data from the rooftops? I don't have an answer for question number two, but I will help you understand how exercise tackles both the bottom-up process that leads to depression and the top-down process that helps us get out of it. This is where things get really science so hang with me. We're going to talk about neurotransmitters, then we're going to talk about the immediate mood boost of exercise. Then we're going to talk about long-term connectivity and the ability to change the structure of the brain through exercise. And then we're going to talk about the self-reliance of exercise and how that addresses the top-down process. So first, neurotransmitters. In a landmark study titled SMILE, S M I L E, Standard medical intervention versus long-term exercise. Researchers found that exercise was just as good as Zoloft at treating depression. Subjects were placed in one of three groups. The first group was given a placebo, a sugar pill, to see if thinking that you're taking a pill that helps you with depression actually helps depression. The second group took Zoloft, which is an SSRI, a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, that affects the serotonin system, the neurotransmitter of the brain, that has generally been linked in a simple way to depression. And lastly, the third group was given 30 minutes of intense exercise three days per week. After six months, both the Zoloft group and the exercise group did better than the placebo group in terms of depression. In other words, both the antidepressant and exercise treated depression well. However, there was no difference between the positive affect reported by the Zoloft group versus the exercise group. In other words, exercise did just as well treating depression over a six-month period as the antidepressant did, but without the side effects. What's even more powerful about this study, however, is that when subjects were followed up one year and three years after the study... The exercise group reported a significantly lower amount of relapse than the Zoloft group meaning that exercise treats depression just as well as Zoloft does over a six-month period. However, those who treat depression with exercise are much less likely to relapse. In fact, the correlation turned out to be some really nifty numbers. For every 50 minutes of exercise completed by somebody, they experience a 50% decrease in their chance of relapse. I'll say that again, it's worth repeating. Every 50 minutes of exercise somebody does in a week decreases their potential for depression relapse by 50%. Now math can be kind of tough, especially when you're listening to a guy talk about it. So I've done some quick math for you. A a four-hour-a-week exercise regimen is 240 minutes of exercise. That lets you apply that 50% reduction five times. And if your risk of relapse for depression is 50% if you've had it before, then four hours of exercise brings your risk of relapse down to 4%. So to recap, exercise treats depression just as well as Zoloft does in the landmark study titled SMILE. However, exercise seems to have a more long-term effect than simply treating depression with an SSRI. And the effect of exercise is dose-dependent on the relapsability of depression to the tune of a four-hour workout regimen weekly, decreasing the risk of relapse from 50% all the way down to 4%. There are some caveats to this, however, that I think are important to bring up. First, the Zoloft group reported coming out of their depression faster than the exercise group. Well, how is that possible? Doesn't exercise create an immediate mood boost, Alex, because of endorphins? Yes, you're absolutely right. Those who exercised reported an immediate mood boost. But five or six hours later, that mood boost was just that, a boost in the immediate. They didn't actually report coming out of depression for three, four, and even five weeks after incorporating the exercise program whereas the antidepressant showed a turnaround average of about two weeks. So although exercise seems to treat depression well without the side effects of an antidepressant, it does not work as quickly as an antidepressant. The second caveat I think is worth considering is that most SSRIs or most antidepressants act on one or two neurotransmitters in the brain. And if you've been following the exercise in the brain series, you know that exercise acts on serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, GABA, and even cortisol. And so while an antidepressant might affect depression a little more quickly than exercise does, exercise also seems to balance out neurotransmitters across the spectrum, treating not only depression, but also other symptoms as well. For more on that, I highly encourage you to check out Exercise in the Brain Part 1 and 2. Okay, so from a bottom-up perspective, exercise can help us feel better on the same terms as something like Zola, by addressing the neurotransmitters of the body in a positive way, without side effects, and with a decreased relapse rate. Awesome. But what about this long-term effect? how is exercise creating some sort of top-down process that's allowing these effects to last in the long term? That, it turns out, is like the million-dollar question in psychology right now, but one of the primary reasons lies in four very important factors in the brain. We call them nootrophic factors that create the perfect atmosphere for the increase of neurons. Remember I talked to you about the connectivity issue in brains that were MRI scanned known to have depression. There was a reduction in hippocampus size, but also a reduction in the number of connections that we can see throughout structures of the brain. In order to improve that density and that mass, in order to improve the connection of those structures, more neurons must be produced by the brain. And to produce neurons, you need nootrophic factors present in the brain that will help those cells proliferate. Four factors, BDNF, VEGF, FGF2, and IGF1. Brain-derived nootrophic factor, or BDNF, Vascular endothelial growth factor, or VEGF, fibroblastic growth factor, FGF2, and insulin growth factor, IGF1, are all elevated in the brain following an exercise bout, and it seems that regularly bathing the brain in these growth factors increases the production of neurons and therefore increased connectivity in the brain over time. My mom was a gardener growing up. We had a nice little patch of tilled ground, probably 300 feet by 100 feet in the side of the yard. We'd go out together in the beginning of spring and plant our seeds. And then, if it didn't rain sufficiently, we would go out on a regular basis, three to five times a week, and water our seeds. In the Tennessee heat, if you didn't water your seeds, nothing would grow. But if the soil of the condition was perfect, then before you knew it, you had cucumber plants and corn plants and tomato plants, everything growing just like it should. Similarly, you can think of your brain as a garden. All the seeds have been planted and the structures are there. However, if you don't water it on a regular basis, then you're not going to make the garden grow. And exercise, it seems, is one of the ways that you can water the garden of your brain, so to speak. BDNF, VGF, FGF, and IGF one are all important factors and important nutrients, so to speak, of the water of the garden of your brain. And if you don't exercise, it's gonna dry up and none of the seeds will grow. And this is where the garden analogy breaks down, because if I didn't water my mom's garden, it would have died. But in the case of depression, the brain brain doesn't die, it just stops growing, and the discontinued growth and the reduced connections to other structures of the brain seems to be what drives many of the symptoms of depression. The last study I'll mention today that really drives this home is a study where a researcher took 17 severely depressed patients for which years of therapy had done no help for. They had done electroshock therapy, they'd done a cornucopia of different antidepressants, They'd even used experimental drugs to try to kick these people out of the depressed state. As a last resort, they signed up to be part of an experiment that looked at the effects of exercise on depression. And this study, conducted at the Cooper Institute, put them through a rigorous exercise regimen of brisk walking, 55 minutes per day, three days per week. In the study, just over half the participants completed the full term of the exercise regimen, but every single one of them lifted out of their depressed symptoms, and five of the 17 original subjects achieved full remission and never relapsed into depression again. The researchers asked the question, why was the last resort exercise, when perhaps it should be the first line of defense? I mean, is it really that hard? to incorporate three one-hour walks into your week. And it's my observation to add that it's not for lack of time that we don't do this, especially since people are spending way more than three hours a week on social media or other screens. I think the most powerful part of this study, however, is that in these individuals, they had tried nearly everything that science currently understands in medicine to shake their depression. And it wasn't until they incorporated exercise into their daily routine that their depression symptoms not only lifted, but in some of them, left them completely. So to recap, Depression's a big problem, to the tune of almost 1 in 5 people dealing with it at least once in their life, and 3 quarters of those people dealing with other things—anxiety, pain, dementia, the list goes on—and we're still understanding what actually causes depression. But as far as we know from a scientific perspective, depression seems to be a lack of connectivity in the brain, with the hippocampus losing quite a bit of mass and volume, and other structures of the brain showing a lack of connectivity as well. The current treatment of depression generally takes the tune of either a bottom-up process of medication, which could result in side effects and relapse, or a top-down approach of cognitive behavioral therapy, where there's relatively low adherence compared to the medication. Now, exercise addresses both the bottom-up process of helping you feel well via neurotransmitters and the top-down process of increasing long-term connectivity between the neurons, even to the tune of helping others for whom every other treatment didn't work. So in order to take away the big message in Exercise in the Brain Part 4, let me tell you a little bit more about my client Daisy. I I knew that Daisy would not enjoy exercising. I mean, if I felt fatigued, I was overweight, and I tried everything to get out of my depression and was sleeping till 2 p.m., yeah, I wouldn't really want to get out of bed and exercise hard either. So for our first several sessions, I kept her company while she walked on an inclined treadmill, and we talked about the things that she was interested in, like her collection of superhero action figures and a few of the video games she was currently playing. After a few sessions, she mentioned the desire to move like the character in her Ninja Gaiden game. And so the structure of her workouts became 30 minutes of brisk walking while we talked about the things she was interested in, and then we spent 30 minutes practicing what we called our Ninja Moves. We had a blast balancing on BOSU balls, throwing medicine balls back and forth, doing cartwheels and forward rolls and kicking bags. After three months of seeing her three times a week, I called her parents to ask if we'd seen an improvement and got to speak with her psychiatrist. Both parties told me that she had improved significantly in the time that we'd been working together. She seemed more upbeat, she was going to bed earlier and waking up earlier, and she seemed almost excited about going to her workouts. But the real difference came when three months in, in the start of our workout, walking on the treadmill, talking about her recent acquisition of a superhero action figure she'd been looking for, she looked me in the face and she said, thanks Alex. And I said, what for? And she said, I haven't told anybody this, but I haven't really thought about killing myself for about three weeks now, and that's the longest time I can remember since I was a kid. Now, I don't know what you're dealing with or what kind of treatment options you or your loved ones might have sought out in order to improve your depression or the depression of those around you, but I'm going to recommend exercise as a first line of defense as well as a last resort. And though we don't understand completely why exercise seems to outdo medication and cognitive behavioral therapy in terms of both improved mood and decrease in relapse... We do have some numbers around the minimum amount of exercise and the maximum amount of exercise that seem to make a difference. So minimally, 30 minutes a day, 3 days per week of walking at a brisk intensity can make a positive impact on depression symptoms. However, a program like that has two goals. One, consistency. And once consistency is established, then two, the number of minutes in a week need to be increased to five or six days a week for 30 minutes a day. And then finally, greater intensities should be achieved in an exercise program like that. Once you're at six days a week, for 30 minutes a day, then one should attempt to incorporate one to two high-intensity workouts in there. That could be the difference between walking around the block versus walking on a Stairmaster, or trying another modality, like running, swimming, rowing, cycling, or even an exercise class. But going to the other end of the spectrum, the question is how much exercise is too much, because one could exercise themselves right into depression if they overdo it. And that limit seems to be measured in amount of calories per body weight. So to know the maximum amount of exercise one should do if they're trying to stave off depression symptoms or perhaps postpone a relapse or keep one from happening completely. Then you should multiply your body weight in pounds times eight. And that's the total number of calories you should seek to burn through exercise in a week. Any more than that? And you're riding the limits of what science understands is good for depression with regard to exercise. For instance, I weigh 165 pounds. If I multiply that by 8, that's 1,320 calories that I should burn in a week as my maximal amount of exercise to stave off depression. In my world, that might be 6 30-minute high-intensity bouts or two slow one-hour bouts with two high-intensity bouts in between. Whatever you do, when incorporating exercise into your world to help with depression, I have four tips for you. Start small. If you're not currently exercising, then any form of exercise for any amount of time is better than you're doing right now. And remember, these impressive studies that show a decrease in symptoms for the long haul weren't doing anything spectacular. 30 minutes a day, three days a week of a walk is not that intense. Two, be consistent with your program. Remember, exercise isn't as effective as medication in the short term. It'll take three, four, maybe even five weeks for you to experience an overall decrease in symptoms of depression when you add exercise into the mix. So it's important that you're consistent even before you see results. This happens to be also what I preach to somebody who's working on weight loss as a goal. Consistency in exercise is how we lose weight in the long haul. And so those first few weeks are the most difficult when you're doing the work, but you're not quite seeing the results yet. Hang in there and stay consistent. My third tip for you is is find a workout buddy. Since at its core, depression seems to be a problem of connectivity in the brain, it also seems to manifest itself in connectivity with other human beings. You can do your exercise in a social place, like boot camp for instance, or a run group. But even if you don't do social exercise, having a workout buddy will help you stay consistent and will help to encourage you through those weeks where you're not seeing the results yet. And my last tip, studies show that starting a new exercise program is significantly more effective If you have somebody supervising you and helping you stay accountable to your goals in the program, personally, I've committed my life to helping people when they want to start a workout program to program it in a way that builds on itself so that they don't get injured, but also gives them a progressive way to feel more and more accomplished every single time they work out. It's also been my passion to ensure that they stay motivated and supported in their goals because we all do better when we have someone in our corner. So if you're hesitant about using exercise to help you with depression symptoms, or you know somebody in your life who's struggling with depression, but they don't really know where to start with regard to exercise, I encourage them to get help with that program. You can find my resources for getting started at definingdadbod.com trial. I'd be happy to be a first step to point you in the right direction. Daisy was an important client to me. She taught me the power of exercise to physically and psychologically lift herself up and others. And to this day, I still keep in touch with her via social media, and I'm happy to say that as long as she's exercising, she doesn't relapse. Just a few weeks ago, I did a show reviewing the results of a recent life expectancy study done in the United States, and I talked briefly about the power of exercise to influence depression and suicide. Those listening at the time might have thought of it as a platitude, but I hope that in listening to this particular episode of the Defining Dad Bod Show, You have a better understanding how exercise addresses neurotransmitters, immediately boosts mood, and increases the ability of the brain to create long-term connections that will decrease the symptoms of depression. I don't want to say that the answer to depression and suicide is simple, but I do want to say when you have a simple solution that could be monumentally beneficial with very few downsides, then why don't we start with that? Next time somebody brings the life expectancy problem to you and talks about depression and suicide, I hope you refer them to this show. And I hope that a large number of this generation of young people will start to find their way out of depression through a simple and consistent exercise program. And if you yourself don't struggle with depression, but you know someone who does, invite them to be a part of your exercise program. Go for a run on Wednesday mornings together, lift weights on Friday, and play Frisbee on the weekends. Who knows? You might be helping them change their brain for the better. This has been Alex Van Houten with Defining Dad Bod. Until next time, guys, kick butt. Take names. The free practical advice and conversations here remain unbought and unbiased, thanks to the support of Better Daily. If this episode has been helpful to you, share it with someone in your life you know it will benefit. Then subscribe to the podcast and leave us a raving review to tell others what value Defining Dad Bond has brought to your health and fitness journey. Finally, if you're struggling for betterment, don't do it alone. We all have a cross to carry and it's lighter when we do it together. Go to definingdadbond.com slash better daily to get supported, challenged, and inspired to take yourself to the next level. Who knows who we can be? If we could become one percent better every single day, go to defining dadbod.com better daily today. That's defining dadbod.com slash better daily.